May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I think it's very important that all of us who are raised in our culture, which I would describe as Christ-haunted. I don't know that we live in a Christian culture anymore, but it is a Christ-haunted one. Even people who reject the faith are often informed by Christianity in ways that they don't even know. Um, But those of us who are raised in this milieu never lose the weirdness of Christianity because it is a weird, it is a strange religion. You know, as Christians, we believe that a Jewish carpenter from 2,000 years ago was actually God incarnate. We believe that he lived a perfect life. We believe that he died for our sins and we believe that the grave couldn't hold him, that he resurrected and that he destroyed death. And this is what makes our religion so awesome, I think. That God comes to us in rather inconspicuous ways. He doesn't come in the thunderstorm, in the great fires. He comes in the still small voice. Perhaps this is why St. Paul says that the Greeks of his day found Christianity to be a stumbling block. God doesn't reveal himself through some sort of cataclysmic event. You have to remember in paganism, the natural world and the supernatural world were not different. They're one and the same. So when there was an earthquake, that's Hephaestus uh, uh, below, the, below the volcano making uh, thunderbolts for Zeus. And when it lightnings outside, that's Zeus getting angry. You know, they, they would associate these natural phenomenon with supernatural activity. And as Christians, we don't necessarily see uh, that in the same exact way. In fact, we say God doesn't reveal himself like the Greek gods reveal themselves through violence, through womanizing, through whatever other sort of character flaws that they might have. Rather, our God reveals himself in a humble Jewish carpenter. Nevertheless, there are moments in the Gospels, slight glimpses, where it becomes very clear that there's something more to Jesus of Nazareth, something unique, something divine. And it's one of those events that we celebrate today as we observe the Feast of of the Transfiguration. It's a feast we observe every year. It was the first sermon I ever gave here at St. Paul's in 2019, August 6, 2019, uh, the Feast of the Transfiguration. You know the story, I'm sure. Jesus takes Peter and John and James to the top of a mountain. He's lifted up into the air. He's flanked by Moses and Elijah. His clothes are dazzling white. He glows. And the disciples hear this booming voice from heaven. This is my beloved son. Hear him. And once the voice speaks, the disciples realize they're now alone with Jesus. Everything has gone back to normal, the return of the quotidian, the mundane, and they go about their business. The disciples don't even mention this experience to anyone. In order to understand why Jesus is transfigured, the significance of this event, I think we have to ask ourselves a very simple and easy question, light question. What is the purpose of being human? What is the purpose of being human? You know, one of those easy questions. The scriptures in the church teach us that we were all designed for an intimate relationship with God, who is our creator, that we were made to adore and worship him forever, that we might even see him, who, as the hymn says, is a mortal, invisible, God-only wise, in light inaccessible, hid from our eyes. This is called the beatific vision, this idea of seeing God. The Christian tradition talks quite a bit about the beatific vision. The problem is that God is holy. And as creatures, most of us are not what we should be. 
And so any vision of God in our present state would blow us away. This morning in the Old Testament reading, we read Exodus. Moses comes down from the mountain and his face is shining. Why is his face shining? Because when he was on top of the mountain, he asked to see God. And God tells him, no man shall see me and live. So God puts Moses in the cleft of a rock and he covers Moses' face And he passes by and he allows Moses only to see what in the Hebrew translates as the backside of God. He only gets a faint glimpse of the glory. But look at what it does to Moses. He comes down and he's glowing. It's very important for us to remember, very important for us to remember, that salvation is not so much an event as it is a process. It's not so much an event as it is a process. It's not an on-off switch. It's a dimmer light. And that process is directed towards us seeing God. In 1 Corinthians 13, St. Paul looks to the end of all things and he says, Now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. The journey of the soul towards God progresses up a ladder of ascent so that we go further up and further into the mystery of God until our relationship with him is so intimate, so complete, so beautiful, that we can peer into that uncreated essence. This is the destiny of humankind. This is what you were made for. This is what I, Lord willing, was made for. This is our destiny. So why is it then that Jesus glows? Jesus, as I mentioned, was not just a carpenter from Nazareth who lived 2,000 years ago. He was not just a nice teacher or a good person. According to the Nicene Creed, we affirm two very important truths about Jesus. He is God from God, light from light, very God from very God, the eternal person of the word. But also, he is man from the blessed ever-Virgin Mary. And so it's very important for us as Christians to acknowledge that on the one hand, Jesus is one singular person. When he acts, the whole of his person acts. So, for example, if you say, well, who died on the cross? We say the person of Jesus died on the cross. We don't say the person, the the, the God, the divine person of Jesus didn't die on the cross or did die on the cross. We don't split it like that. No, Jesus died on the cross. At the same time, we have to also admit that Jesus fully possesses two natures. One of those natures is fully human, and one of those natures is fully divine. As such, in Jesus, we have this beautiful picture of what unity between God and humanity looks like, because it dwells in the person of Christ. Christ's humanity was divinized. It was united to God in the most intimate way. As a result, we can say that the human soul of Jesus was always seeing that beatific vision. And at this event on the top of the mountain, he gives just a few of his disciples a slight sneak peek into what that looks like. And by extension, he gives all of us a sneak peek into what that looks like. And I think it's really important that on a day like today, we also read that story of Moses. Because some of us might approach the text of the Transfiguration and say, well, of course, the Son of God does this. I mean, he's special. He's God and man. He's got both natures. So, of course, he can shine real bright with the glory of God. But what about us normal people? Well, Moses goes to the top of the mountain. Moses doesn't have a divine nature. Moses is just a human. 
And Moses experiences the same thing. He sees God's glory, albeit faintly, but he sees it. And when he comes down, his face is transfigured. He's glowing. He reflects God's glory into the world. He's like the moon. You know, the moon shines because the sun's light is hitting it. Moses, similarly, the glory of God hits him and he bounces off into the world. And the people of Israel, of course, in a sort of funny note, are terrified of this. They tell him, cover that up. There are three, I think, important takeaways from today's feast. The first is that we become what we behold. We become what we behold. The things that we give attention to, the things that we see, the things that we spend time on, the things we put in front of us, those things form us and shape us. We behold movies and TV shows and music that tell us that we find ultimate fulfillment in relationships or power or sex or money. How does that form us? What do we look like? If we behold a toxic 24-hour news cycle that teaches us to hate our neighbors, whoever they are, how does that impact us? We know this happens, at least in our home. You know, when I watch sports, for example, what does Jude do the rest of the afternoon? He pretends to be an athlete. He plays sports because he, he sees it, he beholds it, and he wants to become it. If we watch a Civil War movie, what does he do the rest of the afternoon? He plays Civil War. He wants to be a soldier. He beholds it, and he becomes it. But how does it impact us if we focus on those things that St. Paul lists in Philippians chapter 4? Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report. Well, if we behold those things, then we might become like them too. A second thing that we learn today can be found in the way that Israel responds to Moses' transfigured state when he comes down from the mountains. When Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come nigh unto him. The Israelites were scared of him. And it's an important reminder that holiness in others can be scary because it reminds us of all those things about ourselves that need to change. Maybe it's probably not even explicitly so. It's probably not that the holy person comes and says, hey, you need to fix X, Y, and Z, but that when we're around them, we begin to realize how different they are from how we are. And so if we keep beholding them through relationship, well, then we, become, we come to the realization that there are things in us that needs to change because we become what we behold. So if we, become, if we behold a holy life, we may end up becoming like that person. And I think that many of us, and I'm very much including myself in that, can be too scared to follow that trajectory to its end point because it demands a lot from us. Yet this is exactly what the church has us do. Morning and evening prayer. Every day we read a psalm. Every day we read Old Testament readings. We read New Testament readings. Six lessons a day if you're doing it right. Because we're putting in front of us examples of people who followed God or sometimes didn't. And so we learn from their negative example. But we're learning. We're beholding the truth and we're becoming different. We're becoming changed because of it. It's why we make Holy Communion so foundational to who we are. What is it that the priest tells the people when he holds up the chalice and the, and the, and the host? Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who taketh away the sins of the world. Become what you behold. It's why we have a church calendar full of feasts celebrating holy saints and the church. 
If you ever pick up the ordo calendars that we order, you'll realize there's a ton of feasts. And it might even be a little overwhelming at first, but there's a reason for that. And the reason is that we put these holy people who have lived throughout the history of the church in front of us as examples for us to behold. Because when we behold them, when we center our lives around their examples, as well as the examples of our Lord and the other characters in Scripture, then we become like them. And so we have to resist that fear that might come from beholding these beautiful things. And finally, it's very important for us to remember that our goal in this life is twofold. Our primary goal, of course, is to reach the beatific vision. It's to become transfigured. It's what every single person was born to do, whether they're Christian or not. And those who aren't Christians have often deceived themselves into pursuing lower goods instead of the higher good. Right? They don't know any better. And so that's why we pray for the world. It's why we minister to people. It's why we preach the gospel, because we want to help them reach that, that culmination, that, that trajectory. But it's also important for us to resist that sort of uh, almost uniquely American urge to be an individual, right? Individualism. Sometimes we privatize that relationship. Well, that's between me and God. Well, there is no individual Christian. We're saved in and through relationships. First and foremost, our relationship with Christ and his church, but also our relationships with others. I mean, many of us who are here today were baptized younger. Maybe you were baptized as a baby. Well, you were saved because your parents brought you forward for that. So we're saved through families. We're saved through the relationship with friends. We're saved through, through all these means that God gives us. And so part of our task then is not just this kind of private pursuit of holiness on our own, disconnected from everyone else, but to bring others into that pursuit as well alongside of us. And we find it's capacious, right? God gives us as much light as we can handle, and we reflect that out. And the more we reflect it, the more we can reflect it. Just like Moses, we become transfigured, and we continue to become transfigured as we go further up and further in towards God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.